Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are in First Chronicles. You've come to the right place. And we just want to say thank you to our online donors that make sermon series on podcasts in First Chronicles possible. I love that statement. Today's teaching is entitled David Census, and it's about to get wild. Here we go. Let's dive right into 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1 reads, Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. Hold up. What? Are you kidding me? The nerve of this author is unbelievable. I can't believe that this verse is in the Bible. I mean, really? Satan stood up against Israel? Now, you may not have the same reaction to this verse that I have, but the reason I have this reaction is because I have read the books before Chronicles. And when you read the books before Chronicles, you come across the story of David's census in a previous book called 2 Samuel. In that book, chapter 24, verse 1 reads, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, And the Lord incited David against them, saying, Go count the people of Israel and Judah. Now, both Chronicles and Samuel agree that David taking a census of the people is sinful. But Samuel claims that God tempted David to take the census, while Chronicles records that Satan tempted David to take the census. I don't know if you know this, but there is a really big difference between God and Satan. This is one of the most transparent and obvious contradictions in the Bible, and very few Christians know about it. The Christians that do know about this contradiction will quickly say, no, Craig, this is not a contradiction. And the way that those Christians see around this contradiction is with the reasoning that Satan tempted David while God allowed the temptation. So both verses, they would say, are basically saying the same thing. There is no contradiction here. But I have to confess, that's a stretch to me. Because Samuel and Chronicles use the same Hebrew word, sooth, that is translated as incited in the NRSV. The action is the same, but the supernatural character enacting it is different. This is a serious contradiction, And no amount of apologetical gymnastics can convince me otherwise. If you grew up in the church, the news of this contradiction may be disheartening, discouraging, or even frightening. And when a pastor such as myself says into a microphone, hey, check out this contradiction in the Bible, you may respond by saying, no, 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 please don't show me a contradiction. Show me the parts of the Bible that are cohesive, that make sense, the parts that are filled with everlasting promises. Why is it that Christians react this way? When someone points out a contradiction in the Bible, why do Christians respond with objections, indignation, and even fear? I want to use the contradiction of David's census to frame the rest of our discussion on this podcast. To look at this contradiction in greater detail, I will ask three questions. Why do Christians have such a hard time accepting biblical contradictions? How did the Bible end up with this census contradiction? 
And what can we learn, if anything, from the contradiction of David's census? So let's begin with the first question. Why do Christians have such a hard time accepting biblical contradictions? To understand this, we need to understand what most Christians in America today believe about the Bible. Most Christians believe that the Bible is inspired by God and infallible. Now, the word infallible is an interesting one because it implies that the Bible is free of any error and incapable of being wrong. Infallibility is important to so many Christians because infallibility is what gives the Bible authority in our lives today. Therefore, if you believe that the Bible is infallible, and the Bible says there were a hundred people in Jerusalem, then you can rest in assurance that there were a hundred people in Jerusalem. And if someone else who was at Jerusalem said, I actually counted and there were only 97 people in Jerusalem, then that person, that witness, would be directly challenging the Bible's authority. With infallibility, there is no room for rounding up, guesstimating, or giving a general picture of what happened. Instead, infallibility requires precise accuracy from the facts recorded in Scripture. This is why every contradiction in the Bible is a challenge to the claim that the Bible is infallible. The belief of scriptural infallibility is the reason why so many Christians respond with anxiety to biblical contradictions. So when we open 1 Chronicles 21 and compare it to 2 Samuel 24, Christians quickly transform into gymnasts to demonstrate how this contradiction isn't actually a contradiction. Because most Christians truly believe that if the Bible is proved to be a fallible book, then none of it can be trusted. None of it should be studied. None of it can be the word of God. And none of it has authority. But is that really what the Bible was meant to be? Infallible? What if the Bible is fallible? Does that mean it's worthless and should not be studied? I think this all leads us to an important question that every Christian should ask. Where did the idea come from that the Bible needs to be infallible? Now, most Christians I know are very devout in their faith, but these Christians don't know the answer to that question. Up until a couple years ago, I didn't even know the answer to this question. <laughs> and it's my full-time job to know the answer to questions like this. To understand where the doctrine of biblical infallibility came from, we need to go back to the beginning of the Christian tradition. Sometime around the year zero, the church of the day and the state of the day crucified Jesus Christ. A few days later, a handful of people witnessed his resurrection and told the world, he is risen. For the next 400 years, the Christian faith survived and thrived as more and more people believed in the resurrection story. But all of this belief existed without a Bible. The early Christians for four centuries practiced their faith without any scripture. Instead, all they had was the sacrament of the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper. Think about this. For 400 years, Christians were asked by their friends and neighbors, do you really believe in resurrection? How do you know it's true? 
And those early Christians responded, not by quoting a Bible verse, but instead by saying, because we have the bread and the wine, this is how I know that resurrection is real. For the first 400 years of the Christian tradition, nobody believed in the infallibility of the Bible because there wasn't a Bible to believe in. After the conversion of Constantine in the 4th century, the practice of Christianity transformed from a grassroots movement, meeting in caves with bread and cups, to an institutional behemoth with titles, authority, positions, and power. For the next 1,000 years, Christians were asked by their neighbors and friends, do you really believe in resurrection? How do you know it's true? And Christians would respond by saying, because the church weekly testifies to the risen Christ. This is how I know that resurrection is real. For 1,000 years, church leaders believed much more in the infallibility of the church than in the infallibility of the Bible. Because the church was the primary witness and testament of the resurrected Christ. Then along came Martin Luther, who challenged all of this in the year 1517 by telling the church sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. Now, there are some who think that sola scriptura is a proclamation for the infallibility of scripture. But Martin Luther did not believe that the Bible was perfect. In fact, according to New Testament scholar William Barclay, Martin Luther aggressively campaigned to remove the book of James and the book of Revelation from the Bible because he felt the theology found in those books was anti-Christian. This is important to remember because Martin Luther did not believe in the infallibility of Scripture. He believed in the authority of Scripture, but not its infallibility. Infallibility would not show up for another 342 years, when Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species in 1859. With this book, Darwin challenged the Western world's central beliefs about the origin of human life. Fourteen years after that publishing, in 1873, a man named Charles Hodge at Princeton Theological Seminary declared that Darwin's scientific work was faulty. Hodge claimed that all good science should begin with the assumption that God exists and is the animating force behind the natural world. Now, the scientific community calls Hodge's ideas a fallacy, and the fallacy's name is confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is what happens when you have theologians pretending to be scientists. Eight years later... Charles Hodge's son, Archibald Alexander, took his father's idea and ran with it. And he wrote the Presbyterian's Confession of Faith in 1881. This confession declared that the Bible was infallible. According to historian C.S. Cowles, this was the first time in church history in which such an article had been articulated and adopted by any denomination. I don't want you to miss this because this is really significant in our discussion on infallibility. The first time a major denomination or church 
really adopted the idea of biblical infallibility was in 1881 in New Jersey. Now, this doctrine is not rooted deep within the biblical tradition. Rather, this doctrine grew out of a desperate response to the science that Darwin was challenging people with to grow. From Archibald Alexander Hodge, the idea of scriptural infallibility began to spread like wildfire. About 80 years later, the Catholic Church adopted an infallible stance during Vatican II with the following statement, Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted to put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. In 1978, several evangelical leaders from prominent churches descended upon the city of Chicago to draft a shared statement of belief. After several discussions, they delivered the Chicago Statement, which read, Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. In the year 1980, the denomination I grew up in, Seventh-day Adventists, adopted for the first time in the church's history a stance of infallible scriptures in response to the Chicago Statement. When I first heard that this is when the doctrine of infallibility showed up in my tradition, I was stunned. I was under the impression that the church was founded on the principle of infallibility all along. So when you look at the history of the Bible, which in its current form is about 1600 years old and contains writings from 2800 years ago, what most Christians in America today fail to understand is that the idea that the Bible is infallible is a new idea in the Bible's history. It's only in the last 140 years that Christians began to adopt the idea that the Bible is infallible. And I believe that the people who wrote the Bible and the people who put the Bible together would adamantly oppose the doctrine of biblical infallibility. Now, what I'm telling you may come as a surprise because I know a lot of you who are listening to this podcast today grew up in the church. And most churches gave us the impression that the Bible was written with the intent to be infallible and that the perfection of the scripture is as old as the writings themselves. Which raises the question, why did churches teach us that the Bible needs to be infallible? Why did pastors tell us that the Bible was intended to be perfect? Why were they so interested in us believing in the doctrine of infallibility. Dr. Daniel Walker answered that question when he spoke for our anti-racism Sabbath at Paradox just a few weeks ago. Dr. Walker said, many times traditions are there just to ensure privilege. Why would one want to be acting as someone 5,000 years ago in 2020 unless the status that was guaranteed 5,000 years ago could continue to today, and thus someone would want that status now. 
When the church believes in infallible scriptures, then it ensures that the people who are in power will stay in power. Infallibility enables men to ignore women because women cannot be ordained. Infallibility protects homophobia by allowing people to claim that they just want to preserve God's original intentions for marriage. Infallibility enables white supremacy and serves as a roadblock to racial equality. Why do Christians have such a hard time accepting biblical contradictions? It's because the church, in an effort to preserve status, privilege, and hierarchy, told its congregants for decades that the infallibility of the Bible is the central tenet of the Christian faith, even though it's a recent idea in Christian history. The church has literally indoctrinated us with this false claim. Which brings us to our second question. How did the Bible end up with this contradiction? To answer that question, we have to go back even further than the year zero to sometime around the year 1025 BCE. Around this time, a man named Saul united the 12 tribes of Israel and became king of a new nation. After Saul died in battle, another man, David, rose to the throne and led Israel into a golden age of prosperity. After his death, David's son Solomon ascended to the throne and amassed more wealth, power, and progress than any time in Israel's history, according to Israel. Solomon is credited with building the temple, which housed the very name of God. 3,000 years ago, the children of Israel didn't have a Bible, but they had a temple. And at this temple, they believed that God lived with them and that this structure symbolized God's presence among them. Shortly after Solomon's death, there was a massive revolt and 10 of the 12 tribes seceded from the union and formed the separate nation of Israel, while Solomon's son Rehoboam sat on the throne of the southern nation of Judah. These were very tense times in Israel and Judah's history. Civil wars erupted, uneasy alliances were formed and broken, and anxiety soared through the roof. Adding to the unrest, three empires surrounded Israel and Judah, with Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north, and Babylon to the east. Assyria conquered the northern nation of Israel in 722 BCE, and in 587 and 586 BCE, Babylon conquered Judah. They then took most of the rich survivors back with them to Babylon and forced them to live in exile. Imagine living in exile in the 6th century BCE. Before this exile, you lived with the conviction that your God was, in fact, greater than all the other gods, including Babylon's God. But somehow, Babylon came in with their inferior God and delivered a military victory over the divine creator of the entire universe. Not only that, but you watched as the temple, the very residence of God, crumbled under the weight of Babylonian weapons. Imagine living through all of that in the crushing existential crisis that ensued for the people of Judah now living in exile. The dominant theological question of the exile was, how did we end up in exile? To answer that question, the people of Judah wrote down their history 
most likely while they were living in Babylon. They wrote 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. The theological conclusion recorded in those books, attempting to answer the question, how did we get here, was this. We messed up, but God is still faithful. In other words, God didn't let the people of Judah down. The people of Judah let themselves down. And God, according to these four books of the Bible, offered sufficient warnings and second chances for Judah to obey the commandments of God, but Judah simply could not comply. According to this history, then, God did not have a choice. God then allowed Judah to be conquered and exiled by Babylon. Forty-seven years after Judah was conquered, Persia, led by Cyrus the Great, conquers Babylon and liberates the people of Judah. Cyrus sent them home, and because Cyrus did not want them to revolt, he even gave them money to rebuild their temple. The temple was completed in 516 BCE, and it was a great day of rejoicing in the land of Judah. About 150 years later, the temple is built, it's still standing. Judah isn't living in exile, but something's off. Judah is still a nation state under the rule and taxation of the Persian Empire. But no one is asking the question, how did we end up in exile? Because Judah isn't in exile anymore. Instead, a new existential question arises. The people of Judah, 150 years after exile, begin to ask the question, are we still the people of God? This is a fair question to ask. After all, if God is all-powerful and God is all-loving and there is just one nation that worships God, well, shouldn't that nation be the most powerful, loving, and influential nation on earth? Isn't that what God wants for the people of Judah? So imagine that you are living in 350 BCE in Jerusalem and someone approaches you and asks the pressing theological question of the day. Do you believe that we are still the people of God? Now, the answer that you are most likely going to give is, of course we are. But then the person asks a follow-up question. How do you know that we are still the people of God? Now, remember, you can't quote the Bible because the Hebrew Bible doesn't exist yet. You also can't point to the synagogues yet because they won't exist for another century. So how do you know that you are still the people of God? You look around and the physical manifestation of your religion and the Torah is the temple. And here in the 4th century BCE, the people of Judah rewrite their entire history in 1st and 2nd Chronicles to address and answer their new existential question. Are we still the people of God? The answer that 1st and 2nd Chronicles gives is we know that we are still the people of God because we have the temple. This is really crucial to understanding why we ended up with the census contradiction. In the Bible, there are two contradicting versions of history. Because the historical writings have different questions they are attempting to answer. In my church-heavy life, no one ever taught me this until Dr. Waneel Kim in graduate school.
First Samuel to Second Kings repeatedly tells you how God issued warnings to the nation of Judah to obey, and Judah did not listen. First and Second Chronicles revolves around the construction and care for the temple, even declaring judgment on the kings of Judah based entirely on whether they or not they are stewards of the temple. The authors who recorded these contradicting histories had different biases, different agendas, and different motivations for their writings. And it is obvious the moment you read them side by side. So once we understand the motivation behind the writing, we can begin to look at the distance between the writing. 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles were written about 200 years apart from each other. 200 years is a considerable gap. Consider how someone would write about the Revolutionary War back in 1820 and compare it to how someone writes about the Revolutionary War today. After that, consider how someone might write about the Revolutionary War in the year 2220 and how it might be different than what we write about it today. We know the record is going to be different, even though the record will be describing the same event, because humans continually evolve in the way that we perceive reality. This is exactly what happens between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. In 2 Samuel, the accepted theology to explain human suffering was that God afflicts human beings to teach them. In this theological paradigm, all suffering is caused by God, and the reason you experience pain is because you deserve it. If you got leprosy, it was because you sinned. If your country lost a war, it was because they were not devout enough to God. If thieves broke into your home and stole your possessions, it's because you did not take care of the poor. For the author of 2 Samuel, God is the author of all, even the suffering. 200 years later, the people of Judah are beginning to move away from this theology. They ask, can God really be good if God strikes us with leprosy for sinning? The punishment, in their minds, doesn't seem to fit the crime. So Judahites begin to adopt the idea that an accuser or an adversary, later named Satan, afflicts human beings to test their devotion to God. The accuser isn't really in the Bible up until this era. And even then, the accuser is very different than what most Christians believe Satan to be today. So 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles are separated by 200 years. And both of these authors have very different language and very different concepts to discuss human consciousness and the problem of suffering. To demonstrate how different these concepts are from what we believe today, we can look at the suffering that we are facing right here in Redlands because of the El Dorado fire. These past two weeks in Redlands are some of the most miserable weeks that I can remember in the time that I have lived here. It's hot, ash is falling from the sky, the air quality constantly fluctuates between unhealthy and hazardous. And just this past week, a firefighter gave his life trying to bring this fire to an end. We are grateful to the family for this firefighter's sacrifice, and we are grieving with them in their loss. We are all suffering from this fire. If the author of 2 Samuel wrote about the El Dorado fire, he would say, God is angry with us and God sent the fire. If the author of 1 Chronicles wrote about the same El Dorado fire, 
He would describe this same event by saying, Satan is attacking us and Satan sent the fire. He does this because his set of beliefs has a new way of talking about suffering that did not exist 200 years ago. So while the event is the same, the perception of it has varied wildly. But human consciousness did not stop developing during the time of First Chronicles. Because today we use the scientific method to describe this suffering and come away with the conclusion that a gender reveal party caused this fire. Which finally brings us back to the second question. How did the Bible end up with this contradiction? The answer is that the author of 2 Samuel and the author of 1 Chronicles were attempting to answer two different questions. Not only that, but human consciousness developed over 200 years and their theology changed. The answer is that theology continued to grow over two centuries and they described the same event with different theologies. Which moves us from the second question to the third question. What can we learn from this contradiction? Here in the Bible, we have flat out contradicting information between 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel, which raises the question, well, which one is it? Which one really happened? Was it Satan or was it God who tempted David to take this census? This quandary reminds me of a story that took place a few years ago. In May of 2016, I was at the grocery store shortly after the death of Prince. I looked at the tabloids before I checked out and I saw that In Touch Magazine's headline read, it was murder. Right next to In Touch, the National Enquirer's headline read, AIDS killed Prince. Both of these headlines proclaimed two contradicting realities in big, bold, capital letters with exclamation marks. So here I was, 2,000 miles away from the death of Prince, being told two competing effects about how he died. And it dawns on me that I simply cannot believe whatever a headline tells me. I have to spend energy and time and go and figure out which headline is true and which headline is false. Unfortunately, it was worse than I feared. Because after some research, I discovered that both of these headlines were false. Prince died from a drug overdose of the opioid fentanyl. You may ask me how I know that the overdose is true and murder and AIDS were not true. And the answer is because I have news sources that I trust as credible. The New York Times, ABC News, and Time Magazine. All three of these news sources reported that Prince died of a drug overdose from fentanyl and cited their sources. In other words, they corroborated each other. Additionally, I know that the National Enquirer and In Touch have a shady and consistent history of promoting conspiracy theories in an effort to sell more magazines. Any story or information from either of these publications is met by me with a healthy amount of skepticism because of my past experiences with them. Now, the news sources that I find to be credible are not perfect news sources, which is why I frequently cross-reference those stories to ensure the most accurate picture possible when determining what is real. Because I've learned sometimes the hard way 
that you can't believe everything you read. And to live in 2020 here in America, all of us need to develop a method to discern what news information is trustworthy. I would love it if the world would just tell me what is true, but the world isn't that accommodating. The journey of discovering what is true while sifting out what is false is called wisdom. The definition of wisdom is the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. With all of the information floating around in 2020, we need wisdom now more than ever. And for students of the Bible, the pursuit of wisdom is not a new endeavor. Biblical scholar Peter Enns, who has forgotten more about the Bible than I currently know right now, wrote a book last year entitled How the Bible Actually Works. In this book, he argues that the Bible's primary purpose is not to ensure that we get to an afterlife. It's not to instruct us what beliefs are correct. It's not even to tell us what is true. Instead, he states that the Bible's central purpose is to lead us toward wisdom. He writes, shepherding us towards wisdom, kicking and screaming if need be, that is the Bible's purpose. The Bible becomes a confusing mess when we expect it to fulfill some other purpose, like functioning as an owner's manual for faith. But when we allow the Bible to determine our expectations for the Bible, we see that intending to gain wisdom is our proper spiritual posture toward the Bible. Peter Enns then goes on to point out several contradictions in the Bible and frames each of them as invitations for the reader to thoughtfully analyze the text and come away with greater wisdom. According to Enns, wisdom is why the writers wrote the Bible. Wisdom is why the councils canonized the Bible. And wisdom is why we read the Bible today. Here in the year 2020, we are living in an era with a massive amount of information. While the access to this information is good, the flip side of that blessing is an avalanche of misinformation, falsehoods, and lies. I am recording this podcast today to remind every student of the Bible, both you and me, that we are called to be people of wisdom. I say this reminder fully aware of how the church has contributed to the problem of rampant misinformation today. Throughout history, the empire of the church implored her congregants to just believe everything they were told or everything they read and never question it. The church consistently steered people away from wisdom and toward biblical infallibility. The church pushed top-down authority from elevated pulpits rather than giving us the tools that we need to seek wisdom in contradictions. The church deserves a large portion of the blame for the flood of misinformation we are enduring in the Western world. We are called to be people of wisdom. People of wisdom have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to amplify what is true and silence that which is false. We have a responsibility to ensure that what we share on social media is grounded in truth and subject to review. 
we have a responsibility when we hear rumors about a friend, family member, colleague, or acquaintance to hold that information and stay silent until we verify that that information is true. We have a responsibility to happily hand over our sources when we share information so that others can hold our words accountable. Here in the year 2020, with a vast ocean of news sources, social media algorithms, and unverified articles, we must return to this calling of wisdom right now more than ever. With that calling, let's go back to the contradiction of David's census, but this time with a posture of seeking wisdom. When I read these contradictions, how did you react? Were you defensive? Did you feel scared? Was there a moment of vindication because you felt the Bible was finally being exposed? I must tell you that I have felt all of these things at some point in my life. But after sitting with the Bible for years, I have learned to love the contradictions because they are invitations to wisdom. I'm going to share with you what I believe happened all those years ago when David took that census. I want to share with you my personal views, not because I want you to believe the same things as me, but to invite you into the contradiction. Maybe after hearing my thoughts on this contradiction, you can sit with these opposing texts and ask yourself the question, what can I learn from these conflicting ideas? What I believe about David's census is that neither of these verses are factually true. First Chronicles is wrong and Second Samuel is wrong. I don't believe God tempted David and I don't believe that Satan tempted David. Instead, I believe that David was tempted by David's own ego. He wanted to take a census to obtain a metric to quantify his military might. These numbers were driven by vanity, and David wanted to measure the power of his military. David went through with the census. It was clearly a bad decision, and he had to live with the consequences. God should not be blamed for David's sin. Satan should not be blamed for David's sin. David should be blamed for David's own sin. So I believe that both of these verses are historically wrong. But I do not believe that both of these verses are worthless. Because when we hold these contradictions together, they reveal wisdom about what it means to be human. The ego is what causes David to sin in this story. And so often we can tell stories about how our own pride got in the way. We can tell the stories about how we became too arrogant for our own good or about how we were selfish and it ruined our relationships. And while these stories are necessary, we also have to remember that the ego is not always bad. The ego is what keeps us alive. The ego drives us to eat food. It compels us to stand up for ourselves when we are bullied. And the ego refuses to accept the status quo as the best that the world can offer. The ego has the audacity to believe that we can actually make a difference in the world. 
Which means that the ego is, at times, our greatest enemy, and at other times, our greatest friend. The ego is a blessing and also a curse. In other words, the ego can take the form of Satan and also the form of God. We make bad decisions with the worst intentions, and we also make bad decisions with the best intentions. These stories held together speak to the heart of the human condition and remind us of how we need to be aware of the temptations of our ego. When we can be aware of our own ego and how the ego can betray us both by masquerading as God and the devil, then we are being led into greater wisdom. Our third question during this teaching is, what can we learn from this contradiction? This contradiction has taught me that we are often tempted to blame supernatural forces for our failures, but we are the ones who make the mistakes. Blaming is often used as a way to protect our fragile egos from admitting our wrongdoings. And when we protect our ego, we refuse to learn from our mistakes and we stunt any potential growth in wisdom. Instead, I have learned that my failures and shortcomings are often my greatest teachers, and I can only grow in wisdom when I accept my failures as teachers. To my brothers, my sisters, and my friends, may we have the courage to transcend blaming to learn from our mistakes and to pursue wisdom. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.